1: Everybody, that was Ken Quiet Hawk who did our intro, and we do thank him. You can find him at nativestorytellers.com And I urge you to check out the Native Storytellers, it's another way of keeping history that most of us haven't heard of or utilized ever, and it's a part of our past. So tonight, we have an amazing show with Richard Balthasar. Sorry, tongue twisty. Um, <clears throat> Mark has a whole bunch of information that he wants to share with us, and it feels like it's going to be an amazing show, so get your pencils and papers, because this is one you want to take notes on. So, Mark, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, Barbara. How are you?
1: Doing well. Thank you.
2: Hey, you had a great show last night.
1: It was. It was, of course, Atlantis is one of my favorite topics of all time, so... I could talk forever, and I could <clears throat> listen forever to material about it.
2: Well, I, I enjoyed the two hours last night. It was Me a well-done show.
1: Well, Greg yeah. Little is spectacular. <laughs> yes. Actually, I could have baked and... cookies and done laundry. He was just so wound up about <laughs> it all. It was amazing. So yeah. it, was a, it was a fun show to do.
2: Yeah, and hopefully in September he'll be back
1: with Absolutely.
2: his uh co author. So looking yes. forward to that.
1: Well you've oh. got an amazing oh. show scheduled for tonight. I'm really looking forward to this one.
2: hmm And oh and I do want to remind the uh, listeners that the seed blessing is coming up the 22nd through the 24th at the Serpent Mound, where mm-hmm. we had uh, Jeff uh, Jeffrey Wilson on a couple weeks ago, and the seed blessing that he was promoting is coming up um, the, the 22nd through the 24th, so that gives you... The family something to do this weekend.
1: I well,
2: hope you know, it'll it, it, uh freeze. Yeah, it's you know the Serpent Mounds located between Cincinnati and Chillicothe, Ohio. Uh, it's it you know, it's going to be a nice time. It might be a little chilly, but it's, it, it's still a great great night out. And uh, mm-hmm. let's see what, what else. Um, yeah, I don't think we're going to get any uh, Portland cement kind of stories tonight. That's a re- <laughs> re- reference from the, uh, last night's show. But, you know, uh, Greg even uh, you know, covered migrations after Atlantis sank or, you know, was destroyed. Uh,
3: mm-hmm.
2: You know, the show we did with Richard Thornton a couple weeks ago, He covered migrations from Central America. Uh, You know, we've heard others, you know, Dennis Stone has covered uh, transatlantic crossings. Um, I think in prehistoric times, everyone knew America was here. And we'll be looking at more evidence in the artifacts and folklore with my ancient American colleague, Richard Balthazar. So I want to bring on Richard, welcome, Richard. How are you?
4: Well, good evening. I'm doing well. I'm looking forward to talking about all of this interesting stuff.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's going to be great. uh, Barbara, you had uh, lawn on last week. Uh, Richard's going to be telling us a little bit about this discovery of an ancient coin he made uh, 50 years ago in Michigan so yeah uh, uh, you know, uh, well I can we need to know uh, that
4: story if you want okay yeah, yeah yeah that's fine it it's,
2: you know it, it, there's for, for some reason as as you know we keep going through all these shows uh we, we keep getting all these strange stories coming out of michigan i I don't know what's going on yeah. up there in prehistoric <laughs> times but <laughs> for for some reason Michigan is becoming yeah, like, yeah I, I've been reading it, a
4: lot more about things happening in <laughs> Michigan too that have surprised me in the past few years uh, one was this article about the garden plots in lower Michigan from yeah. the long uh, whoa major industrial scale archi- uh, agriculture in Michigan and yeah. a thousand years ago <laughs> well you know There's something going on, that's for sure. And Michigan is is, – actually, I lived in Michigan for a few years long, long, long ago. That's how this happened. Uh, And I don't have much of a place in my heart for Michigan because I've been so many other places and researched so many other areas. But uh, coming back to the coin, uh, it was one of those things that total uh, accident I was married and had got a little brand new little townhouse in Ann Arbor. I was in graduate school, and it was brand new. I mean, they had just finished building it, and to build it, they had taken a, a grater and scraped the side of this little low hill on the top of the hill to flatten uh-huh. the place to put the house. And right there in that fresh dirt scraped down from this, which I swear has to have been a mound, uh, uh, I was planting some flowers. And what do I find? But a Roman coin in the dirt right there where I was planting my zinnia. <laughs> okay. And uh, it, it, was, it was so utterly out of sight. It's a Roman coin. How does this possibly happen? And it was put in a box. And I didn't think much about it, except every once in a while I got this Roman coin. What do you know? So I was sensitive to reading about the finds of Roman coins uh, around uh, in various areas of of this continent, and um, I read about them and learned about them. And so, just last year, I guess it was, I realized, you know, this coin that I've got lying here in this box is important. And so I wrote a little story about the finding of it and trying to figure out what it was, which I, it was all encrusted with mineral covering and that sort of thing from having been buried hundreds of years, thousands perhaps. Um, and I didn't know what it was. I couldn't identify it. And I put it in the magazine Ancient American, basically saying, here's how I found it, and this is what it looks like, and I want to know what it is. <laughs> Uh and why it is, and why it is. And so various people responded to that article with information of, shall we say, different evaluations. (laughs) And um, uh, one fellow actually came across with a precise identification. He sent me a picture of the, 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 shall we say, the mint coin which this one was clearly, uh, uh-huh. and uh, it was absolutely beautiful. I thought, oh, my goodness, and he gave me the date, which was right around 303 A.D. for the, uh, uh, what was his name, Maximilianus, or Max. it was Maximilianus, yeah, because there's uh-huh. a Minionus yeah. also. <laughs> but at any rate, he gave me the identification. So I put another article in, in – um, ancient Americans saying this this coin has now been identified. This is what it is. And when it, when it dates from, the question still remains is why was it there? And no one has come up with any responses on that one. And that's where my question hangs in the air. Well, if this came from the beginning of the fourth century in that location, why, how, you know, and I can get no answers. Nor can I get any answers, even from the, shall we say, scholarly societies whom I contacted earlier along, and the archaeological society and all that sort of thing. No one would respond with anything about it, because it was found in Michigan. And I'm, I'm saying it in that intonation, because there is a, a prejudice. Is the only word you can use against uh, things that go against the academic interpretation. And the academic interpretation is that there there was no contact. The Romans were never here. The the coin has some other uh, explanation. And I got a few suggestions that were just absurd beyond words. Uh, And I, I tried to... You know, be gracious about writing them and saying thank you for your your explanations. I, I will take it under advisement <laughs> and left it at that. Of course, so um, I'm still waiting to hear someone tell me why that coin was there. Okay,
2: uh, Richard, it's uh, not. Uncommon to you know, uh, you know read stories about these kind of discoveries. Uh, you know, one of our first uh, guests, Lee Pennington, uh, did a uh, you know, pr- pretty extensive article on Roman coins being found in uh, Louisville, uh, Caleb mm-hmm. oh, yeah. Atwater Outwater. Yeah, and Caleb Atwater in 1820, in his description of the antiquities discovered in Ohio, uh, mentions Roman coins being found in a cave near Nashville. Now we had a Sunday, uh, you know, reporter from Nashville out there to one of these areas, but yeah, in uh Caleb Atwater's book he does say that it was uh the coin was dated not uh too many centuries into the uh christian era so okay what's it like 2 3 400 ad exactly
4: uh, yeah it's mine
3: yeah yeah
2: that's uh that date seems to Appear uh, in books, uh, a book written in 1820. Uh, your discovery in the 1960s—that yeah, just seems to be something. The date just seems to be something of significance. And uh,
4: I would, do, I would agree entirely.
2: Yeah, and, and totally. Do yeah, uh, you know. What was you you, were, you, know, you? you mentioned there, like there was some of the, uh, uh, like soil, uh, encrusted
4: on the coin. Well, it, was, it, 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 it wasn't so much the soil; it was a mineral incrustation uh, from uh, you know accumulated moisture in the soil around mm-hmm. the coin. It was it was a, a white kind of incrustation almost. Uh, like a salt or, or something like that, you know, or a okay. crystal. Or yeah,
2: yeah. You know, were you able to be able to read anything that? Was oh yeah, written yeah. Or, the, oh, picture, okay. the,
4: the picture that I put in the article of that coin, you can make out various things on it because I've I've color adjusted the color so you can see through. A, a lot of the um, encrustation and you could see the, the form of the of the person on the back and things of the face on the, on the front and all that sort of stuff. It's just that they were all encrusted with things and you couldn't make out uh, some of the stuff. But uh, the image that the guy sent me of that coin is absolutely crystal clear and I put that in the second article. So people could mm-hmm. compare and, and see what it was.
2: Okay. And uh, you, you know, these two articles are in editions one hundred nineteen and one hundred twenty-one. You know, just uh, give Wayne. I think way that's
4: a- uh, Yeah, the found the ancient coin found is one hundred nineteen, and the identified is one
2: hundred twenty-one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so it, it, You know what. What are some of the challenges you encountered uh, as you were trying to find out more about you know, this time <laughs> well, time period? Yeah, you already mentioned a little bit about the a- academic, and, and it's just uh, you contacted a lot of people. Uh, well, a lot know, of what... people
4: contacted me. is what it came okay. well down to. As a result of the art, first article, a lot of people contacted me with their ideas and explanations. And there were many, including a woman from northern northwestern Indiana along the Huron River, not far down from Ann Arbor, who she and her brother found Roman coins when they were little kids along the Huron River in a mound. It was washing away. And she, she wrote me about that, you know. and So that was back mm-hmm. probably in the... 40s or 50s because she was an old woman like I'm an old man <laughs> and we we commiserated a lot about all of these old memories <laughs> um, but anyway she was she was one response that was well worth noting I can't recall her name but she's in the article um, there were a number of very strange explanations for why it got there for the you know, but the most interesting was a fellow who was a specialist uh in um Roman history and he explained that right then was the, the big persecution of the Christians in Rome
3: hmm. and
4: enormous numbers of the Christians uh in the Roman Empire really fled. Now, they had access votes And there's a good possibility that many Roman Christians, bringing Roman coins, uh, came to this continent. That's the the conclusion that I like to believe. Let's put it that way.
2: Okay. Um, uh, Barbara, uh, Rick uh, Osmond has in his book uh, the... Uh, I think it's the Ninth Roman Legion.
1: Yeah, it's the w- Ninth was, what, the, the Ninth Legion, they think, um, was here, and up and down the Mississippi uh-huh. and the and the Wabash, um, there are the remains of what appear to be Roman forts.
4: Uh, I did read something about that once. Yes, yes, I recall. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it, and they were
2: pulled off a of building, Hadrian's Wall, and they just, like, kind of disappear for 25 years. And uh, Rick's... Yeah, the,
1: yeah, the entire legion, along with along with all of their camp followers and along with all of their horses, and, and only one person returned after 25 years.
4: Oh, my goodness. That's I, how we uh, know, I assume, because one person came back. Yep. The guy who came
1: back, yeah. The guy who and, came back was was also given the governorship of Petra, I believe. Mm-hmm. So he must have yeah. oh, something really? quite spectacular. Yes.
4: Wow, yeah. wow. Mm. Well, that certainly would explain, you know, how the presence of of Romans, of whatever faith or or military rank. Uh you know, being here in in the the valleys of the Wabash and, and the Huron and all of that sort of thing running up there, yeah.
1: About the same time That's frame, true. too, I think.
4: Well, it, I would expect so. Yeah, yeah, because a so hundred years it, later, Rome was over with.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs>
4: yeah. So
2: uh, Rick.
1: Rick's book is the uh, Graves of the Golden Bears, and. um It's all in that book. It's a great book.
2: Yeah, so there might have been two different – the uh, Ninth Legion was building Hadrian's Wall. They might have been leaving from England. Richard's scenario sounds like they could have been leaving from Italy. uh,
1: Or England. uh, Close,
2: yeah, cl- cl- or closer to the continent, uh, you know, more con- uh, more continental uh, mm-hmm. uh, departure place. So, so you well, have I mean, people from two different areas converging on, on North America. It's it, it, all, all about the same time.
1: Mm-hmm. and yeah, don't forget uh, that the copper copper mines up in Michigan and. Uh, Wisconsin um have been in they've been functioning for the last 9,000 years and Rome exactly. certainly they were, went yeah. there for copper as well.
4: Totally. Yeah.
2: So uh, you, and Richard uh yeah you, know, you had the usual uh, comments about um as yeah, so, so yeah, you know, a guy, yes, you know, a, a, a veteran returning from you know, the First World War, uh, dropped dropped the coin on uh, what would be later become your property.
4: Well, not so he, much my property, but that hill, yes,
2: yes, yes yeah,
4: exactly.
2: So, so, mm-hmm. so, so you, you, you get all the usual comments, but. the more we do these shows each week we just can't rule out that these ancient people were also naval engineers even uh, uh, Maria Wheatley spoke about that a little bit some of the sailing that had to go on at least across the channel to get the uh people like the Ainsbury Archer across the channel well, so, absolutely. You
3: know,
2: yeah, and the, you know Nero had his floating palaces where he try uh try to kill his mom on uh with the lake ne- Nemi or out in the Pompeii harbor or something like that uh you, know, they, you know, they yeah they had uh a really good understanding of shipbuilding.
4: Well, speaking of shipbuilding and shipping and that sort of thing, we have to understand that even the Sumerians had large ocean-going boats, and they really plied the seas around Africa and Asia and that sort of thing in these big boats in 3000 B.C. And there's every reason to believe that they probably were up in the British Isles area and all that sort of thing amongst the megalithics and the the tomb makers and the Stonehengers and all of this sort of thing, that there was some kind of a presence even there because of of the seafarings. it
2: uh, It just seems like all this trade that was going on is just... A, just natural human evolution of, it is yeah you know, uh just connecting with people uh to different parts of the world um you know you know there are books like uh the lost colonies of ancient america where uh you know, the amorphae uh jars were found in brazil and you know there are also other uh uh, some uh, Roman shipwreck found off the coast of Honduras. So, there, this your isolated coin is you know, just part of the bigger picture of human travel. It's a
4: microcosm. It's a microcosm yeah. of the the macrocosmic concept we're dealing with here. Uh, it's it's just that one little grain of sand. There's that one little coin right there. But when you start looking, you realize that there's a lot more than that all around. It's just one. But I feel privileged to have found it and to have had it for these years because it's, I I feel it's very symbolic. And I don't mean to sound crazy, but I I feel it's symbolic that I've got this coin from that long ago well I'm disinterested in things from so long ago too that's anyway yeah, uh, so, uh,
2: um, you know, it, it's you know your coin has been what uh dated you, know, you, you got your an, uh, you know uh, majority of your answers you are know, still looking at yeah, the possibilities of why it's here uh, the, the, that uh, uh, Christian persecution does fit into the date of the coin, and uh, that makes sense. Uh, you, you know, what else do you are, are, are you looking for uh, oh, I, to learn I, about I, this
4: coin? Oh, I, I realize that there's no way to learn the specifics of that coin, but the general explanation of the time that brought that coin there is really what I'm getting through you and other readings at this point to understand that there was a Roman presence in some fashion around here and interfacing with the mound building uh, cultures because they were, if this was in a mound I, I will claim that to the day I die this coin was from a mound right behind where my little house was put and uh, i in my second article i su- suggested if someone wants to put together an expedition to go up and investigate this thing with a metal detector and that sort of thing and all the, the permissions let me know and i might even go along <laughs> Okay, I uh, think it's gets,
2: gets <laughs> to happen.
4: At, at, I don't think it will happen, but I put it out there, and if if someone wants to, you know, to organize an expedition, I can point them in the right direction. But I'm not a, not about to do that. I've got too many other interests afoot than than pursuing this little coin. So, and it, it, apropos of that, I. I the other interests that I have afoot are, are the things that, that I have done articles on for Ancient American because it all ties in with with my intense involvement with a lot of ancient American stuff <laughs> not only mm-hmm. here in this country but uh, Mesoamerican stuff and Aztec things uh, the yeah. major themes of my life
2: Yeah, and Richard you've you know, had 40 years of you working with aztec uh, artistic materials artifacts as a you know a, you know museum curator yeah you know, you're working with all kinds of you know, the that uh, well I, I do have to correct
4: per- you I'm not I've never been a museum curator okay I have simply uh, investigated as a uh, independent researcher. I've looked into all these materials and learned about them and that sort of thing. But it, the fact of the matter is most of the, my approach to it has been artistic because I, I've been after the, the um, iconography in particular of the Aztecs mm-hmm. for the past 30 years, 40 years. And mm-hmm. put, my artwork is developed around that so that the show I'm doing now I've, I'm in various places around, are um, icons, big black and white icon drawings of various Aztec deities. Uh, and they're very intensely tailed, but they're designed for a coloring book. And that's what the show is that I'm traveling around now with. Uh, 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 what, uh,
2: Richard, what got you interested in uh, you know the Aztec Culture and art. Uh,
4: where did where did it start? You say.
2: Uh, what got you interested in it?
4: Oh yeah, <clears throat> oh, it was it was sheer fluke when I read somewhere about the structure of the Aztec century. The Aztec century being fifty two years, and I thought. 52, and I looked into it, and a little bit later in the same book, it explained that it had this count of 52, which was 4 times 13, just like a deck of cards. Got that? Yeah. Uh It blew me away. Well, really, but it wasn't just the fact that it was four 13s. It was how they counted the years, because they counted 1 through 13 four times, but they counted across the suits instead of down the suits and their suits were different names rabbit reed flint and house so the the years counted one rabbit two reed three flint four house five rabbit six reed and so on and so forth and it, it was just it was the most elegant system i'd ever seen i thought that's fabulous and it led me into the calendar, which counts 13, 20 times to make the year. and with symbols for the days and the gods that ruled them and all that sort of thing. And that's what hooked me. I thought, oh, this is spectacular. And I've been working artistically at it now for over 30 years. The, the first thing I, I wound up doing was, again, almost 30 years, 28 years ago. Uh, I did a book on the Aztec calendar with my art in it uh, based on images from mostly the Codex Natal, which is one of the Aztec prophecies. Um, And I called it um, Celebrate Native America and Aztec Days. Uh, and it explains the whole calendar and gives a lot of horoscopic stuff about the gods and the weeks and the days and everything. And... Um, Really, it was beautiful colors, really incredible uh, colored work that they printed in Korea for me. Uh, But um, this book sold fairly well, and it's out of print now. But I wanted to mention that it is available for uh, download as a PDF from my website for free. Everything on my website is for free, Uh, this and many other things. Uh, Celebrate Native America is You just hit a button and you've got it. My website is uh, www.richardbalfazar.com. What else? (laughs) Um, And uh, that was the first thing I did was this four-colored Aztec calendar. And then over the years, I have focused on doing these uh, black and white icons that I told you about about Uh the the, uh, deities. Yes? Yes
2: yeah and uh one of the i i i i tell you one of the uh really interesting deities that is in the uh rio Grande sun article has uh-huh. the uh, th- this wait, let me scroll down here and find it uh you have the the uh, artist had these. Oh, there it is. Um, you know the the, the uh, profile. There are three profiles, and you know the hands are uh, outstretched, and around each uh, of the profile's left eye. There is like different symbols. Um, it, uh, well, the, the bottom yeah, I'm, one I'm, almost looks like a, I'm, a mask.
4: I'm, I'm trying to picture this because I get the feeling that it might be the singers on the side of the old coyote icon.
2: Yeah, yeah, that, what, uh, that's it. He...
4: Okay, they are they're yeah. singing. He, he's the the god of choral singing, and those figures okay. are singing. And those figures around their eyes are tattoos, Okay. plain and simply. Yeah. Uh, whether okay. they mean anything, I haven't a clue. <laughs> but
2: but I, I always I real. Okay, I, I was just really intrigued by this artistic motif. Uh, I, just, well, it, 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 I wasn't it, sure if what it's it It's authentic
4: meant. from, from – uh, actually, it's based on some images from the um, Codex Bulbonicus, those three choral singers with the, the song symbols coming out of their mouths. Um, that's called kursiat, the, the song symbol. And uh, oh. <clears throat> that image, that icon that you're referring to, by the way, is the noisiest one I've got on the bunch. There is all kinds of music and singing going on in that icon. They're all little designs around the drummers mm-hmm. and the, the flute players and <clears throat> this sort of thing. And notice that the coyote himself, Coyote, uh, is howling. Those little marks up from his nose is his howl. And this is a very, very, very noisy icon.
2: <laughs> well, I, I, I. I just really like the detail. It, there's just something. It was just begging the question. You know what? What does all this mean? And it, it got the different headdresses. It, it, it's just really intriguing of the uh, costumes of the Aztecs. This is what we're kind of talking about up to about uh, the ninth century A.D. Oh no, no, no. You know,
4: Aztecs are, are from about uh oh about fourteen hundred to fifteen hundred oh, A okay. D. Yeah, I mean they're okay. they're real, real late. But you have to understand most of these icons are not really Aztec. There's only one Aztec god in the bunch, and that is Huitzilopochtli, the hummingbird of the South. He was their war god. He brought they he's the one that they brought with him into Mexico. And when they got, let me have a drink of water a second. When, the <clears throat> when they <clears throat> got into Mexico, they basically adopted the culture and the religion and the mythology that was there. And so most of, all the rest of these gods and the things that I'm working on are really not Aztec. They're coming from deep in the Mexican background, many of them with roots in, amongst the Maya, possibly the Olmec even, but who knows. Um, and they have survived and transmuted through various cultures, things like the Mixtecs and the Zapotecs and the Totenax and I can't even name them all. Um, and these continue those traditions which the Aztecs then adopted, And now we call all of that Aztec. So that's a point I always want to make is that, well, like these aren't really Aztec gods. They're, they're Mexican gods. Uh, But Mexican is a misnomer too. Because we, we call it Mexican because that's taken from the tribal name of the Aztecs, the Mexica. And so even when we refer to Mexican, we're still saying Aztec, <laughs> and I don't know what to call it other than Mesoamerican, because it's it's a progression through various cultures. Anyway, I'm beating on a drum that I'm sure other people can express better than I. No, uh,
2: it's, it's very interesting. Uh, we, you know, when we had uh, Richard Thornton on you know, a couple weeks ago, you know, he t- tell us a little bit about the. Uh, Mesoamerican migrations to, um, you know, the Gulf Coast regions, southeastern yeah, United I, States. I I'm,
4: I totally love the whole subject, and I follow Richard's blog religiously and mm. eat it up. <laughs> anyway, continue.
2: Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, you, yeah. You do talk about a, a lot of the uh, the artworks. Do are personifications of the natural world
3: mm-hmm.
2: it is just very interesting to see all the uh, the detailed artwork um i'm sure just, you know a lot of the listeners are familiar with um yeah you know, the, the the vibrant colors and uh, yeah, like the uh, oh the um,
4: oh Barbara, what's uh,
2: the uh, guy that, that's supposedly driving the spaceship? It, it's, oh, the, you're uh, thinking of pa-
4: that that image? That pa- oh,
2: Palenque. Palenque.
4: Yeah, Palenque. that's, Palenque. Yeah, that, uh, that's it. The, yeah, and all Palenque.
2: I know. Now, I've
4: read about that. It. Yeah. Yeah, there, I, there's I've, like I've studied that one.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah there's just all, all that really uh, it's kind of like uh, almost closer to uh, 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 the hallucinogenic imagery from the uh, book of Kells uh, it just get all this very intricate artwork uh, the, the well detail hit upon of one of my art-
4: things <laughs> I, I would if, say. If, I might, if I might interrupt here, because I do believe this, too, that a large amount of the iconography and the imagery that we get from um, the ancient Americans, if you will, was heavily hallucinogenic, that they indulged in enormous numbers of hallucinogens across the societies, but usually in a ritual sense. I mean, almost always, a ritual sense. There was no recreational use. Uh, And that is what formed their artistic vision. I I, I really sincerely believe that in the Aztec codices. You go into the Codex Borgia and you think, whoa, these people are on something. (laughs) Because it is that striking, that Mm -hmm. psychedelic almost. From the 1400s, you know. Yeah, uh, and. I uh, wanted uh, to add, too, though, apropos of the hallucinogenics and stuff, I show them in the icons. The icon for Mayawel, uh, the the goddess of of Pulke, and the one for her husband, Patekat, the god of medicine, are. There's all kinds of hallucinogenic plants all over those icons, from peyote to marijuana to morning glories to you name it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're doing mushrooms. they are pictures. Uh, they're, these are based on real images in the codices of people sitting around at a party holding psychogenic mushrooms. You know, it, it was big stuff. That's why it's all so weird. As far as I'm concerned, but I love it anyway
2: <laughs> yeah and, and, and you know richard your uh use of the ad- adjective striking is uh very appropriate um, because that science is it, w- what it is and mm-hmm. you know we really don't understand it as well. Today, but it, it would have had a lot more uh, meaning, you know. Five six hundred years ago,
4: spiritually, yeah, it was a yeah. spiritual condition. It wasn't. It wasn't a fun thing. <laughs> it was a spiritual experience to do these things, and it was the root of their aesthetic and their their religion. Mm-hmm. That sort of thing. I mean, we 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 don't understand that uh, what it would be like because it's simply not in our our world. It's it's a, an outlaw kind of thing, you know. But their world was so utterly different. That that's what's fascinated me so is to just try to conceive of what it was. There's, but again, that's another drum I won't beat on at the moment. But.
2: but yeah you know, so so, so yeah you, know, you have this vibrant artistic culture uh that i'm sure is colorful uh you know, for yeah you know, you're making the case that at some point they are uh migrating out of Mesoamerica, they make it to, you know, the, the Gulf Coast regions, you know, central part of the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like
4: Richard, like Richard Horton was saying, I, I I really sincerely believe that. Yes.
2: Okay, and you get the, uh, I, you know, Richard was talking about that uh, Mayan blue color. Uh, right I,
4: yeah. I I I know about that one yeah I I don't yeah. remember what it's really called but except Mayan blue yeah yeah
2: yeah I I I don't I don't know the official name for it either but you know you know we do have samples of uh you know we, we talked about this you know I think when Dennis uh was our guest the uh I think it was like the base of one of the um uh, mounds at um, uh, Poverty Point has the same uh, dimensions as, yeah, you know, kind of like contemporary, um, uh, 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 like plaza, uh, pyramid. Oh, yeah, this city uh, layout and
4: t- is just explicit. Yeah. Richard Thornton yeah. is showing that it's just explicitly the same city layouts for these different cultures in different places, you know, in yeah, Major and they're America all
2: using, and, yeah. Yeah, and they're all using the same uh, unit of measurements and it, it, it does work. The same unit of measurement does work at both uh, uh, places in Louisiana and uh, Mexico. So, you know, there is more evidence uh of you know the migrations coming to America, but you know, you're also focusing on some of the artwork like the uh plumed uh serpents it you know, was brought to America as well can you tell us mm-hmm. a little bit about uh that conce- uh concept uh about
4: the concept of coming to to from the Mesoamerica,
2: plumes, yeah, and the plume serpent.
4: Uh, sure, yeah, that was in my article in numbers one one six of Ancient America: The Plume Serpent in North America, and I just basically reviewed images of the plume serpent through the cultures: the Olmec, the Maya, and Teotihuacan, and Uh, then leading into the Aztecs and actual Aztec pictures, showing that this theme ran all the way along through through Mesoamerican culture. But then I brought up an image that I did from my first book about Indian mounds. It was an image of a plume serpent um, from a shell cup in Spiro, Oklahoma. The Kadoan, uh, Mississippian area. Spiro, Oklahoma, is—if you get a chance, go. The the, the images, the artwork around Spiro is, are staggering. They were huge numbers of, of uh, shell drawings. This is a, a serpent with wings and horns. Hello, horns. <laughs> Uh, and this is very like the, uh, uh, what in the devil is the southwestern one? I can't even remember what it's called. doesn't have wings, but this is a Mississippian one with wings. And then there's other things that tie in. And I tie in actually the serpent mound as very possibly being another representation of the plumed serpent because Squire remarks, in that 1840 survey that there were these sort of flanges off from behind the so-called head,
3: mm-hmm. which
4: he speculated might be plumes like the plume serpent. And we're talking 1840. He wrote this. So I I, I brought that into and a few other things, but I, I really believe that, um, the the um, this this ties into so many things here that this plume serpent theme uh, as a, as a deity uh, ties in with a, in a, a theory that I had my, for my first article about where the Aztec calendar came from. I won't even try to summarize it because you you need to read it. It's it's almost mathematical. <laughs> And i come to the conclusion that there's a good possibility that the Aztec ceremonial calendar originated in uh, Chavín de Huantar in Peru. Uh, I, anyway, <laughs> this, at Chavín de Huantar, the culture also revered the Jaguar, basically the word jaguar, the man jaguar, and they they also worshipped a plumed serpent, and it would seem that this, uh, shall we say, complex of man jaguar, plumed serpent, and calendar, as a kind of religion, may very well have been brought up the coast. Uh, because the Chavin de Juantar were seagoing people, uh, and crossed hmm. over to the Olmecs and and fed into Miss, the Mexican and then into the Mississippian world, so that it's kind of the American theme, Pan-American religion symbolism almost. That's that's an article that I'm I'm planning hopefully for another upcoming issue, and I've raced through this thing because I didn't dare get into the details. But I do want to return, and, and I, I'm sorry to dominate it this way, but I need to say these things. No,
3: no, go, um, go, 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 ahead,
4: go ahead, Richard. <laughs> uh, in my article in number one, one, I have to get my glasses to see what number that is, 118, uh, called Mesoamerican Influences in Mississippi, being the mississippian area um i brought up the, my discovery of a shell gorget that i found for sale from a, a guy and a gorget by the way is a great big kind of pendant made out of shell that you hung around your neck on a cord and they would engrave these things with pictures there were many gorgets that came from spiro that are really knock your eyes out um but this gorget came from Muscle Shoals area of northwestern or was it eastern Northwestern Alabama, I think it is, and the guy who had it had various things he was selling on the internet, and this one came up and I tried to buy it, but he just couldn't find it, whatever that meant, but I had a picture of it, and the background of of where it was found and stuff. This gorget has a face in the middle of it, odd uh, kind of stylistically, but it's not that odd when you start to think Aztec. And around it, there is a, essentially a serpent uh, surrounding him. But the serpent's head is the day symbol, first day of the year in the Aztec calendar, this coat. Uh, uh, the earth monster is the first day of the year and that's the first image that shows up and then there's another one over here of another day sign uh, vulture and then there's another two at the bottom of the day flower and the most important thing is that there were four symbols sort of around, you know, spaced around which were all the same one of earthquake. That's a day, a real honest-to-God day. And I show in the article how the day signs that appear there are virtually identical to much fancier uh, day day signs that come from um, the codex, I think it's Laud, if I'm not mistaken, from, from Veracruz area, identical images. The important thing is, though, that the four earthquake signs around this face, four earthquake is the Aztec day name for the current fifth sun, the, day, the world we live in. There were, there were four other suns before. We're the fifth sun. And that would mean, if this is four earthquake in the Aztec symbology, that the face in the middle of this Is the the face of Tonatiuh, the god of the fifth sun, from Mexico, and it was found (laughs) in Alabama. That was the point Uh of my article, and and I I, um, elaborate with some other gorgeous, some beauties, including jaguar men and eagle knights and, and turkeys and things like that. But it's. Uh, I feel very proud of this article because it, I really felt like, hey, this is sort of like the Roman coin that I had. Here's this picture. I don't care if I own it or not. This is this is real. It, I know where it came from, and this is this. It's a piece of Aztec calendar in Alabama. I get excited. Forgive me. <laughs> no, it, uh, it. It's. Uh, you, you're allowed to e- express your
2: excitement on Night Lightward?
4: Oh, I, I mean, think sure this is I'm just
2: fa- it's I, fascinating.
4: I, we're having a well, good time I'm, I'm you. I'm glad you find it that way. I'm glad I'm glad you enjoy that, and I hope that people will find a way to uh, read my articles because I I feel very strongly about them. Uh, they were, you know, thoughts that I've had for years that I've finally found uh a, a um, way to get them out to people and um, ancient american is a, is a treasure to me for exactly that reason that these curious things that i run across i can send to Wayne May and generally he will he will um, take them <laughs> uh the latest one i have in uh, with him is not coming out in this issue uh, but it will hopefully make it into July issue,
3: and uh,
4: that has other connections. I, I mentioned to Mark that it's about um, ancient America, Asia coincidences. So it's, it's a little um, more speculative, you might say, <laughs> than some of the other things. But um, yeah, yeah, I will get
2: yes. Yeah, I was just going to say we uh, we can talk about speculation in a minute, but since we are still talking about your um, article in edition 118, and you, you, and you also make a, a, another interesting uh, comparison between you know, the Mesoamerican artwork and what how it changed over time and over uh, space, uh, once the you know, people uh, you know, were just uh, co- converging at one location or so and uh, you know, exchanging ideas, and you know you are uh, focusing on the development of uh, the turkey symbol. And, you oh, yeah, the turkey
4: it. symbol is wonderful. I love that. Yeah,
2: yeah uh, I, I, it's, it's worth to, to spend a few minutes talking about. I, I, I really like it, too.
4: Oh, I'm glad you do, because um, one of the icons I've done is the jade turkey. His name is Fotoğlin, and he was the um, god of military glory. And it may sound odd to have a turkey as a god of military glory, but you have to understand how aggressive turkeys are. They are very aggressive and obnoxious creatures. They're like geese. Uh, and so that's why it, <laughs> why it got this military cachet, if you will. Um, and it's a very potent symbol of, of the militaries, though, there aren't any turkey soldiers. There's jaguar soldiers and eagle soldiers, but not turkey soldiers. Um, what I brought up in the article is that the image of the, that came from the Aztec codices of the turkey is very varied and sometimes really magnificent. Um, but every one of them has this strange kind of tuft of feathers coming out of its breast, straight ahead. Uh, Mm -hmm. And when I I saw that, you know, all these years, and when I was drawing it for the jade turkey and things like that, I thought, what on earth is this? And then I found, in looking for uh, uh, shell gorgets online, I found an image of one from Alabama of a turkey. And it's really quite elegant, too, There were a lot of turkeys on the gorge around because It was apparently a military symbol there, too. Uh, And this turkey has exactly the same tuft of feathers coming out of its breast. And that's Alabama. (laughs) So it's yet yet another um, piece of evidence. And the the turkey image is is just wonderful, just a wonderful thing.
2: Anyway... Uh, uh richard just, just to back up for a minute when you're talking about the um uh, gorge the alabama shell gorget that has the face and the crocodile and vulture earthquake and flower in a circle right. and, you know, and circling the head uh huh it it, uh-huh. it, 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 it how, how, how do we read the icons? Is there... Well, or the, all you is sort
4: of, I'm, I'm not too sure how to exactly understand it other than just the kind of image of the god of the and the fifth sun. People are very familiar with that Aztec calendar stone, which is really the mm-hmm. stone of the suns. That's the same thing. That face in the middle is Tonatiuh and it has the four lobes of four earthquakes around it and it also goes deeper into the mythology than in, in that image. But this is basically the same image in a different style from Alabama because it's got its four earthquakes and his face in the middle and the other days of the calendar around the, in the, the, the Stone of the Suns they're all 20 days are around the circle there. This only has the first and the last and a couple in between. So it's, it's, there's no way that it's not Aztec. If you or, And it doesn't have to be, wait, I, I take that back. There is a way that it isn't Aztec because this is before the Aztecs. <laughs> uh, the whole concept of the fifth sun and Tonatiuh was again Mexican it had been there for centuries in the mythology because they were all living in the fifth sun. And so this image came to Alabama very, very likely well before the Aztecs took charge in Mexico. This probably came from the early Veracruz area because of the the images of the codex. Uh, And, it could have been Totenac and uh, Richard Thornton has remarked frequently on the Totenac connection with the Southeast. So I feel that, that this plays right into that.
2: Okay. And, and, and speaking of uh, R- Richard, you know, he he was talking about his Creek uh, heritage and you know, you, you do include the Chickasaw uh, folklore how yeah you know, they spoke about um, they were de- descendant from yeah you know, uh, Mexico no, Me- Mexico
4: what but the, the source said and I'll I'll just read it because I got it in my hand right here I, okay. I was given this uh, letter or at least document It was written by a, a man named Worley from back in the 30s who was uh, a, a, a WPA sort of conservator. He was trying to figure out what was there before they flooded everything with all the 40 dams. And he wrote from talks with Chickasaw people there, these Indians in this locality were the Chickasaw, they were originally the Toltecs of old Mexico. They were much more cultured than the people they lived among and had to fight continuously to survive and wish to move to a more favorable location. They then sent three young men, professional runners, in three different directions to try to find a different location to move to. These runners were gone two years And when they returned and gave their reports, one described this local territory as ideal. He's referring to Tennessee Valley, River Valley, saying it was good hunting, mild climate, good ground for planting, many clear streams and springs as a source of good water and good fishing they gathered together everything they could bring with them and even the bones of their gods and came afoot from old Mexico. When they came to a river, they gathered logs, burned them off to proper length, tied them together with vines and crossed. Guess what river that was. I bet mean, it was the Mississippi. When they arrived That's here, they were much pleased with this location. They wished to disconnect entirely from their former people. So they renamed themselves the Chickasaws in honor of the young man who discovered this location. Um, I, I I was just blown away when this guy sent me this piece. This is the guy that has that, that um, uh, five, uh, four earthquake gorget, as I call it. Uh, and he sent me this a photocopy of this guy's handwritten thing saying this. Uh, The whole thing about Toltecs is, of course, a misconstruction. No one really knew the ins and outs of who was who or anything like that. It was all kind of mythological. So they're saying they were Toltecs doesn't mean they were Toltecs. It could easily have been the Toltecs that drove them out. But that's neither here nor there either. I mean, you know, it's um, just too clearly it, it happened. There's a tribe that the Chickasaws came up here, and they they know that the guy who found the thing was named Chickasaw. so i i am willing to accept that as history myself
2: okay and Richard, you just mentioned that was a uh a sample of folklore that's it came out of the uh you know, 1930s and you know the uh, TVA's uh work with uh salvaging the mounds before the uh you know valley uh was flooded to make the Tennessee River but you know, yeah, you, you, know, you do also uh bring up these uh codices books that you know, just you know, has more of the um artwork art instead of you know, the sur- surviving examples of just uh, uh f- folklore so how, how many, you know, you are talking about um the, the codex uh, Borgia, um, lot, of Oh, yeah. um Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, yes, yeah, several others. Uh, Vindo Bonensis uh, Codex, Nuttall Eagle Knight. Uh, it, it, uh, several it, it, different. It's
4: wonderful names. Wonderful names. You'll get used to them. You get used to them. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, I, I really yeah, what, fell in love with the Codices. I collected off the internet the images from all of them. I have all the pages of all of them, and I've studied them. In and out. They're so fascinating. And again, to toot my own horn, on my website, there is a a thing listed under art. It says, Ye Gods, the Aztec Codices. And there is a whole uh, treatise, if you will, about all of the surviving codices with examples, a couple or three, from each of them and discussing what goes on in those pages and stuff like that. Again, it's free. You can go to my website, hit a button, and download a PDF. It's yours. So I won't say any more about that one. <laughs> but no, it, I will talk. I will mention about the codices, though, just in general, that there are several different kinds of, and codices are picture books. There's no written language. They're all pictures, heavily drug infused. If we might add. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but they tell stories uh, They tell mythological stories They show mythological situations um, they, There are some historical ones That show real people And images of Conquests or whatever But they, again there's no words It's uh, symbols For different places That they've taken or whatever uh, And there actually Is one codex The Nutal which, well, actually a couple others do it too, picture the, a specific man, a deer jaguar claw, who was the king of Tolotongo or something way back before, well before the Aztecs. Um, <clears throat> and this, this king is um, always shown, you can recognize him, because it's got his name, eight deer, the calendar symbol, and a little jaguar claw. That's his other name, eight deer, jaguar claw. He was a major mythological hero of Mexico. Not Mexico, but Mesoamerica, if you will. <laughs> uh, and uh, it's fascinating to see an honest a picture, supposedly, of that person. And you really have to think that it probably does look something like him, because he has a very specific face tattoo. And um, he also, uh, uh, this is hard to say because people will say, what? <laughs> he has a large beard. But yes, a lot of the Aztecs have beards, no question about it. A lot, even the gods have beards. <laughs> and um, uh, <clears throat> this this king's beard is... is um, Quite remarkable, and it's a picture of a man from the 14th century. I I I think that's rather special. At any rate, amongst the the codices, uh, some of them are calendars. That that calendar I was talking about. Uh, Uh Very beautiful images, uh, and they very different styles. They're, They're really something else, and. The major corpus, if you will, however, are what's called divinatory codices, manuscripts. And they are the religious ones that are used for casting horoscopes. And God knows what else the the priests had cooked up around them. You really have to just meditate on some of these things. What on earth are they driving at? (laughs) And oftentimes it's not on earth either. You can bet that. Uh, But those are the the fascinating ones, really fascinating ones for me, Codex Borgia being one of the most spectacular. It was named not because of uh, anything to do with it. It was sent to the Pope by uh, Cortes as a gift of conquest. (laughs) And it became, became, that was Pope Alexander VI Borgia, okay? And it went into the collection of his nephew, Cardinal Stefano Borgia. And so that's why it's the Codex Borgia. A little bit of trivia here. I love trivia, too. (laughs) Um, But the, the codices are a source of endless fascination because they are a source of endless questions. And Usually, it's what on earth do they mean by that? The juxtaposition of elements and the and the just the images themselves are boggling at times. There's some really, really hallucinogenic images of, of serpentine beings and demons and all sorts of things. Uh, <clears throat> apropos of which, and I hate to run off on this, but. <clears throat> One of my icons, which is the one for the obsidian butterfly, is now in process of being turned into a mural in the town north here of Española. These friends of mine have an organization called Moving Arts Española, which works with um, at-risk youth with arts programs and broadening education and all this sort of thing. And they are doing a mural of this icon, not the whole thing, but most of it, Uh, and coloring it because it's designed to be a coloring book. They'll figure the colors. And this thing is going to be 14 feet tall and 8 feet wide. So I'm just really thrilled that this is happening. And uh, I'm going up there tomorrow afternoon to talk to these kids about whole thing of the codices and gods and this goddess in particular, and meet them and see where they've gotten on the layout and the coloring. I'm totally pumped, but that's that's enough there too so it,
2: it, it, Richard, Richard, you mentioned that the codex Borgia was sent to uh Pope Alexander. Uh, the, the sixth. I, um, I'm sure, like, the Codex Vaticanus is probably sent to you know, the, the Vatican. It, it, it does somehow that or mean another It wound
4: up in the Vatican, yeah. Uh,
2: uh, uh, okay, th- th- does that mean th- that most of them, uh, uh, of the Codexes uh, or Codices, have been? Are being curated at the Vatican?
4: Uh, no, not most of them. The way that all worked, and that's a, it's a pretty gross story. Uh, upon the co- the conquest of uh, Tenochtitlan, Cortes very quickly sent various uh, prizes of war, if you will, to rulers around Europe uh, as gifts. And the, the amongst the gifts, there were, were these various codices he collected from who knows where, but different areas around Mexico, because they weren't all Aztec per se. They would, somewhere were somewhere um, um Zapotec and God knows what else. Uh, they were sent out before the book burning, and the book burning is what most people don't know about. After these, there were 15 of these codices sent out to Europe, and so they're in different places, the Palais de Boupon, France, Bourbonicus, uh, and things that, in private collections and stuff. When the church moved in behind the Conquistadores, and it did it quickly, it proceeded to burn anything that burned, because it was all devil books. And all of the ritual stuff that would burn if it was wood, they burned the temples. Most of them were wood. Uh, They burned all the manuscripts and huge bonfires. The priests oversaw these bonfires, and they literally incinerated the culture of Mesoamerica. Bingo. (laughs) They proceeded to do a similar thing when they went later into the Mayan area. But in the central Mexico, basically the, the literature and the um, heritage, at least combustible heritage, uh, of, the, of the area was destroyed. So these 15 codices are all that's left for us to see how they saw themselves or the world. And, again, that's what fascinates me about them. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it the artwork
2: just really pulls you into something that is not really a, a part of our culture and, and gives you you yeah it, it, it gives you a a great insight into another uh region another time it, it, it's just uh i i've just really enjoyed learning more and more about an area i didn't know a whole lot about i'm I just i am uh learning along with a lot of the other uh listeners i, I you know you're just giving us a great education on it you, know, interp- you know, Interpreting the artwork
4: well I thank you that that's really what I'm doing yes indeed, kind of uh, uh, absorbing it and reiterating it and in, in my drawings and that sort of thing it, it's it's all things that they saw as icons basically <laughs> that I'm using in my <clears throat> uh, my images and it's it's trying to tell the story of the, the, the deity of that icon the way the Aztecs would have told it in, in their picture writing. And One example of that is the, uh, the icon that I mentioned, the hummingbird of the South, who was the Aztec war god. Uh, that icon is special in this series because it actually has a... Um, narration that runs down the side from the upper left down and across the bottom to the other side. Uh, And it's a pictorial narration of the legend of the Aztecs' migration. Uh, And it literally there there is an account written by a priest who interviewed someone way back when. Uh, And so I've got a, a, a Aztec-style pictorial narration of their wanders and, and things that went on, which were many of which were unspeakable, uh, until the, uh, they come to the promised place, which is the place of the cactus, Tenochtitlan, a little island in the lake, and that's where they took root, if you will. So, in the image that I've, I've got going there, then it leads into the narration of the growth of Tenochtitlan through its merchandising capability, if you will, and its military conquests to wind up with their sacrifices to go to the temple up in the upper right, the temple of Huitzilopochtli, uh, the god of war. And he's all in the middle in very grand, grand, feathery glory.
0: But he is
4: the one Aztec god, and so I did him right. I gave him the whole story of the Aztecs coming from supposedly um, uh, the land of the Seven Caves, which I won't go into, that's even more um, of a stretch, uh, down into Mexico and making the civilization of the Aztecs.
2: That's what I mean.
4: These icons have stories. (laughs) No, I,
2: I, I'm. So you know, I'm not a scholar of this. I, I, I'm just very eager to learn another aspect about world history and and another example of this. Uh, how yeah, the same image was brought to America and <clears throat> changed uh or is it adapted uh, uh, and, but in you know, like the uh, oak you, know, you do mention Oklahoma yeah, there's uh the uh it's in your number 118 article where the uh subject of the drawing is wearing this uh say toltec style cap and armor and he is uh 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 doing the traditional uh mayan uh kneeling and and you know, this image was also found in Oklahoma, in Oklahoma artwork. Is Oklahoma, like maybe the Spiro Mound, it, it, is that one of the locations where we can maybe have one that, uh, uh you know. Pinpoints with a little bit more accuracy where the southern migration met with some of the uh, native uh, uh, people, and there was a lot more interaction in Oklahoma, and that's where you get this idea suddenly emerging, uh, but it it becomes – Adapted uh, uh, you know, but by, by the uh local people or is, is there a better location where there was this interface between the two um, cultures and a big exchange of ideas
4: I, I know what you're asking, yeah, and I believe you've you've hit the nail on the head. I believe that Spiro is kind of a transitional spot
2: but uh, okay edge I a it. better term.
4: Yeah, uh, that western edge of the Caddoan Mississippian was basically in contact with the Mesoamerican and Mexican, I, I have to keep saying Mexican, uh, sphere, but also with the Southwest. The whole Chaco uh, Pueblo uh, world out here, they interfaced with that too. Uh, <clears throat> that's why there are horns that on. The, the serpent, the winged serpent in Spiro, because that's the, the, the southwestern image is the horned serpent.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, and it was plumed so, I mean, in that's, Central America.
4: Oh, right, yeah. But the Mississippian folks, uh, well, actually, see, the, the influence from Mexico coming through Spiro was encountering. Um, the mississippian cultures who were in their roots also mexican so there was there was a similarity if you will and i believe at least my my reading of this is that the the later uh influences from the let's say the twelve thirteen fourteen hundreds, 1400s uh coming through spiro because spiro was at that point too um Sort of led a cultural shift across the Southeast, which is basically called the Southern cult. I can't even go into the various pieces of a cult, but things like the Jaguar Man, uh, Gorget, and the Eagle Warrior from Edoah, and that sort of thing, those are Southern cult images. And they relate really strongly, as I've shown here to, uh, in the article, with the uh, images from the codices of the jaguar knight and the,
3: the uh,
4: eagle warrior. So what it just explains to me that cultures were moving through here constantly, and the later wave that came across was the southern cult. It changed the, the, the kind of art and images that were happening in the southeast.
3: Mm -hmm. And 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 you have
4: to understand, I am not a historian. I'm a speculative historian. But I look at these things, and it seems to read to me.
2: I'm I'm enjoying what you have to say, and it just sounds like what other historians have, uh, discussed and, you know, like I said, the, uh, uh book, uh, the, uh, signs of power that, uh, does have a chapter that discusses the similarity in measurements between, uh, poverty point, Louisiana and S- Central America. I, it, that, that's a mainstream history book. So it, it uh, the, the
4: connections with a poverty point and and what uh, There's
2: some some uh archaic era site in mexico that both use the same uh almost like megalithic yard uh measurement to lay out the size oh, of I the believe mounds that. oh yeah yeah. Uh, so it, I, it's it, yeah. You know, it's not like you're uh, an out there alternative historian making these speculations. Uh, it's you, you get the uh, mainstream academic people uh, just discovering t- some of these same connections, and it shows up in some of the DNA tests as well. Uh, and you get, oh, I know, uh, I know. Uh, the uh, the Kennewick Man having Asian genes what's he doing in you know, his body was found in some stream in uh, Washington State and right, he, he was like 10,000 You know, walked over uh, to America 10,000 years ago so there was some kind well, of confusion going on
4: um, just uh, within the past month I read a press release, if you will, on, forgive me, MSN, (coughs) about a discovery on an island off the coast of British Columbia. Rather large island, I can't remember the name of it, but it that doesn't matter. And they discovered, as they were, were digging on this thing, that that island had never been glaciated. Great Big Island. And it had been populated. They found a settlement way down below in the digging uh, from, I believe it was 12,000 B.C. That's 14,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. There were people living there because there was a fireplace and a little bench and some various things <laughs> that were buried. Uh, and it's, that really gives you pause That was before they supposedly came across the the Bering Land Bridge, which is an absurdity. But, you know, they date that at, uh, what is it, 10,000, 11,000 B.C.? I don't remember. But anyway, that was my news break that I uh, felt thrilled by. Oh, yes, okay, good. We've got something here to sink our teeth into. (laughs) Uh,
2: was that just a habitation site, or, or was there a burial associated with it? Uh,
4: I, I didn't know at that point about a burial or anything. I, it was a habitation okay. site, though. So,
2: okay. Well, with, they didn't get artifacts. Yeah. No? Well, I, I, you know, there's. I'm sure there was a fire. They didn't get the you know charcoal sample. Uh, but you know, oh, yeah, just and, uh, you know,
4: they, yeah, they got it. Uh, the charcoal samples, uh, radiocarbon. The, and that sort of thing, and that's where the date came from. And there, there were some fire tools and 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 sticks and things in, associated with it too. You know. Okay. Tentals. I was, I,
2: I, was, you know, I, I was just uh, wondering if there was, uh, if there happened to be a, a burial nearby, you know, which if well, the DNA to, test was done,
4: yeah. Uh, unless they're really lucky and find one in this pit pit that they're digging, I don't imagine they're going to spread it out to dig too terribly large, uh, you know, but who knows? Who knows? It it would be wonderful to discover something that would tell a tale.
2: Yeah. A telltale uh, tale. uh, It it, it would just be interesting to see if there's another Asian... A uh, person who either walked or uh, built a boat, and I'm, I'm willing to
4: I'm willing to see. believe that it was boats because even in 10,000 BC, the Jomon from Japan were were sailing the seas. They would sail the whole Pacific. So I oh. I have no problem with the notion of people coming over on boats from before, you know. Okay,
2: and. Uh, uh barbara the uh conversation you had last night with greg uh covered um you know, the haplo uh,
1: oh yeah uh, uh, uh,
2: d- dna and uh, that you know his 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 points were interesting uh, i it, it's really a fascinating study like this haplo waxes have like a few, uh it, it does show up in uh, prehistoric America, but you know, that it, it, it's not a very uh, large number of people that have the gene. It, it's very uh, mysterious. You know, Where's that coming? Where's that coming? Uh, there, there's some, you know, all the stuff that our, some of our guests have spoken about shows that there's some kind of my, uh, diffusion, my, you know, Worldwide migrations going on, and you know, Greg's points about the haplo X uh, 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 gene being in America was just uh, very interesting.
1: Well, it, well I, I think I, what was I fascinating really have... was you know, it's it's everywhere that they said that the Atlanteans went when Atlantean when, when Atlantis was destroyed.
2: Mm -hmm. And there's another
1: And primarily with the Iroquois Um, The Iroquois seem to have a great abundance of it
4: I I really have not followed the DNA studies at all I have to admit I'm not that technological
1: (laughs) Well neither am I The only reason I was fascinated with it. Was because I did twenty three and me, and I knew, I knew what my, um, my group was.
4: <laughs> oh, indeed, I'm sure. Yeah, I understand I the motivation. Not,
1: yes, I am not one of the. At least genetically, I am not one of the descendants of the people that fled Atlantis. Sadly.
4: <laughs> well, my my. There
1: very my disappointed. Sympathies.
4: <laughs> you have my sympathies.
1: Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that's okay, the well, only reason I even understood it.
4: I, I I didn't catch that.
1: I mean, the the, the haploid group I had I had seen I, who was it? I think it was Rick Osman that talked about the haploid group and groups at one point. And,
2: um, that sounds like so I, I, s- something he'd bring up.
1: Yeah, it, it's something. No, you know who it was? It was Brad Olson.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, Brad does. You know, can talk about that in, in depth as well.
1: Well, no, I'm very superficial with it. So I can say <laughs> it, and I know what it is, and that's about <laughs> it. <laughs>
4: you got one up on me.
2: Definitely. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, these. Uh, so many of the guests we've had on our show for seven, about seven and a half months now, um, many of them have. have yeah really made some uh great points uh about these migrations uh, all the uh and you know, they presented you know, just various you know, c- convincing uh artifacts uh, folklore stories and yeah, you know, I, I think Richards added a, a lot tonight with uh, by interjecting artwork into the migration stories, I, I, and just one, one more piece of the puzzle of you know, what was going on in prehistoric America. Like it just, it just kind of sounds like it was basically a huge metropolitan area where everyone's like stopping through on their way to doing more trading or doing coming here for well, religious it, it,
4: purposes. It, Mesoamerica was even more than that. It was uh, it was in all, for all intents and purposes a culture area. Uh, not unlike a country of our size. We are a culture area, too. It happens to be rather big. Don't worry about what the culture is. Uh, but that culture area had various dialects and amongst it of, of different peoples, many language groups, and there was a, a general kind of trend of, if you will, civilization that swept through them and with centers of activity. Uh, over the centuries, starting about 10,000, not 10,000, 1,000 B.C. Because things got rolling in, in the first millennium B.C. It really did, all over the place. And the height of the Mayan civilization, which is taken as the major, is about the time of Christ to 800. That is not to say that for a thousand years before that time of Christ, it wasn't really an eye fold, because it really was. But their classic period was the several hundred years after Christ. And that culture that fed through them and into the rest of them is, these, these are the remnants that you can see in the pictures that I put forth, like the uh, images of, of Quetzalcoatl in one of those articles from the codices, these are images that come from the deep, deep past of Mesoamerica, and most people don't really grasp the flow of the, the culture area's dominance because that's really what it was uh, from the Olmec into the Mayan and into the rest of the Xochicalco and all the rest of these things leading up to Mexico City. Uh, it's pretty... Integral, if you want, if you will, it's it's unified, and a a large portion of it of that unity is that triad, religious triad, of wing, plume, serpent, jaguar, man, and calendar. I mean, (laughs) that's the best I can put it together in a in a nutshell. I guess is that these are the last little glimpses we have of pictures from that culture of that religious triad, if you will. Mm
3: -hmm.
4: uh, um, Richard,
2: since we've been looking at these um, images from a, a really distant, uh, Past is there any connection to the um, uh, you know, figures at uh, the, the Nazca area, like the little spaceman thing? Is is that you know?
4: I've, I've I've considered that as I've looked at the Nazca lines and the other set of lines. I can't remember the name of them. And I don't see any stylistic really connection. I really don't. I, I,
2: uh, I, yeah, I, I wasn't sure about that, but I, I, you know, since we're just kind of looking, it, this is about one of the first shows you know, we, we've been looking at Central American art. I just wanted to include it. I I wasn't sure about that either. I just wanted to throw it out there and.
4: Yeah, it, it, it's a, not only it isn't stylist is it stylistically different those lines, but it sort of it's a different idiom, the way you say something, the idiom that develops in, in Central America, from Peru even too, uh, is more ornamental, if you will. Uh, that 's the only word I can come up with at this point ornamental you ornament something it isn 't just a picture, it is ornamented <laughs> and it has patterns on it and, and extra little frills and this that and the other uh, the uh, Mayan art is very much that way you look at it oh, my God, look at all these curly cues and i can 't make out what 's going on in here <laughs> in this complexity uh it's It's a different idiom than those lines in South America, which to my mind tells me that the people that did those lines were not the same people as some of the other peoples in Peru who were doing ornamental things like the Chimu. Their ornamentation is a style unto itself. It's really quite remarkable. Um, and other cultures in, in Peru have their own kinds of, you know, oftentimes geometrical uh, styles, but even they are not like the lines in uh, in Nazca. Uh,
2: uh, Richard, uh, you know, I was, um, you know, wonder a little bit about the artwork, and I found it uh, Chaco Canyon, I guess there are a couple other uh places uh in your you know, just g- general vicinity oh
4: yeah <clears throat> well and, there and, there isn't it isn't so much that you find artwork out here as you find petroglyphs, and I guess they are artwork, but they're mm-hmm. they're drawings on stone, and the thing here petroglyphs here all over the Colorado plateau as a matter of fact. Date way back, way back into the pre Fremont people, and then even the, amongst the Fremont, and then the Chacoans types uh, did it. And so there are styles that, that run through these peoples also that are, are really exceptionally interesting and intriguing. They really are. I've taken so damn many pictures of petroglyphs, and I've just sort of filed them away. What am I going to do with these? <laughs> But um, this brings in one little topic that I did think of mentioning, uh, which is about the Southwest, Uh, and it's a book that I just recently finished reading called The Lost World of the Old Ones, Discoveries in the Ancient Southwest by David Roberts, Uh, and this looks like it's Norton. At any rate, um, he he is basically, if you will, a travel explorer writer. Not so much an archaeologist, but with leanings that way. And he really knows how to research things. And he's written that this is his second book about the Southwest. The reason I bring it up is that it has something in it that I looked at and said, yes. (laughs) Yes, this is what I knew was going on. Um, it's an archaeologist from Colorado or Utah, I think it is, who has this theory called the Chaco Meridian, <laughs> huh. um, archaeologically based, in that there's the the notion of the Chaco civilization in the middle of New Mexico, basically, uh, is the, the mainstay of southwestern archaeology, of course. It was the epicenter and peak um, the Chaco civilization supposedly just, get this, disappeared. But the fact is, it didn't. (laughs) And this archaeologist shows how apparently the the population of Chaco transferred at a specific time when they abandoned Chaco. they moved north to a a populated area, which now is a town in New Mexico called Aztec, but that's neither here nor there, the, the Aztec ruins are the, the second Chaco, and they were uh, on exactly the same uh, longitude as Chaco. I mean, it was zip-bang north. And you have to understand that Chaco had roads running out from it in all directions, straight as an arrow for hundreds of miles, and this one was a road, boom north to that place. And they populated that heavily as a a culture center for about 150 years and then left. And right at that point, (laughs) the city to the south of the border of New Mexico, in Mexico even, called Pacime, uh, which is exactly on the same uh, meridian, if you will, Uh, I think it's 107 degrees, that may have just been a figment of my imagination. But anyway, 170 degrees is Pacumé, which arose right at the point that Aztec declined, and it basically flourished for a couple hundred years, and then disappeared. But right at the same time, apparently, down further in Mexico at Culiacan, the same kind of city arose again, right at the think right on a hundred and seven degree meridian. So this is what the the Chaco meridian is all about that he's talking about in this book. And I think that it, it is just fantastic. I don't I don't disbelieve that they would keep on a, on a north south meridian. Why not? At least it's a direction, you know, and very few directions are pointed out to us. <laughs> Like North and south, but so anyway i, I wanted to bring that up as as a, a plug on Mr. Robert's book. It is well worth reading. There is so much more in there about the Fremont and the various other areas. you'll love it,
2: it, 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 it i I was reading in, uh Gary David's uh, the Orion Zone it's some of the petroglyphs in Uh, Chaco Canyon showed that there was a supernova. Oh,
4: yeah. Mm -hmm. Apparently there's uh, an uh, image of of that 1054 or something like that it was.
2: Right. right. It's 11th century uh, uh, supernova. And that seems to be a pattern that – an event that really – it uh, uh I j- just uh, was interpreted as i some catastrophic event or it you know, really captured the people's attention uh well it, it, it was, I, I
4: think that it i think that it definitely captured the attention because whatever it was was beyond spectacular yeah and beyond the pattern spectacular. is spectacular yeah yeah, and, and whether and the or not pattern, it caused ruination or something, it, but just the the thing of this vast light in the sky. How else do you categorize it except something supernatural?
2: And yeah, that that's
4: it, how it becomes a symbol.
2: Yeah, and, and it just seems like uh, it, the the pattern was uh, repeated throughout. The desert southwest,
4: and uh, it, 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 I also <laughs> yeah, that. It, yeah, it,
2: it was just uh, another interesting point about all this. Uh, you know, the so much of the artwork. Uh, you know, you've spoken about tonight, and as and you know, we wind down with the last, you know, a few minutes uh, of the show. Yeah, talking about uh, petroglyphs, uh, um, I, it, it's yeah. This is, you know, Richard just did a terrific job of um, uh, just giving us new insights into a world we you know really don't talk about all that much on Nightlight. You may not hear it all that much on other shows, but it that was you know, my intention. Not, yeah, you, you, you're not letting us forget history, and yeah, uh, you know, I just thought uh, this was uh, just a really different show for uh, Nightlight. Uh, it was terrific, great, great information. It was just giving us new a, a new learning experience.
4: Well, I'm pleased to have done that because I'm an old a teacher from long ago, but it's been a very long time ago. And I've always enjoyed imparting knowledge of whatever kind to whomever will accept it. Okay,
2: and and, we have four four minutes or so, and we need to uh, give you a chance to plug your website. You, you You have a upcoming event associated with the opera.
4: Sure. Let let me do a plug real real fast, a couple things. Sure. About the website, again, is is www.richardbalcazar.com, and there's all kinds of pull-down menus. You just sort of fish around. You'll find all kinds of things. Amongst the things you'll find will be my first book I want to mention because it was my first love, Mounds, Indian Mounds, And this book is called Remember Native America, The Earthworks of Ancient America. Uh, And it reproduces a lot of the Squire and Davis uh, surveys and things from the Cyrus Thomas volumes uh, as a travelogue of Indian Mounds. 1992, mind you. So it's way out of date at this point. Uh, There's a huge amount more. This book is available on the website also. Just hit a button and sure, it's a PDF. You got the whole thing. Uh, It's out of print, but it's still available electronically. Um, (coughs) Excuse me. The other point of news is, as um, (coughs) excuse me again, as Mark mentioned, um, I have uh, an opera scheduled to be performed. It isn't really my opera. It is Tchaikovsky's opera called Joan of Arc, and I've translated this baby into English for singing in English. And uh, I did it 40 years ago for a different situation. I reworked it for this one. Um, And it's going to be done by the New Orleans Opera on the 7th and the 9th of February next, 2020. I'm just pleased as I can be and hope hope I'll be able to get there and see it performed. But anyone who wants to go to New Orleans and see it, I highly recommend it. it will knock your socks off. <laughs> so I guess that's my plugs.
1: Gonna go mark my calendar.
2: Okay, hey, and, and, uh, uh, it sounds like Barbara's already uh, getting ready to make a road trip. Oh yeah. and let's see uh yeah you know, you're going going to be working with uh art uh art and yeah you know, some um uh you know, youth in the area you know, good luck with that project you know last week's show we kind of touched on uh you know journal writing and how arts Uh, help Poe to work through almost like uh, post-traumatic stress disorder uh, symptoms. So um, hopefully that can uh, be used to help out um, the situation there. so what any, anything else in the last minute t- two minutes or so want to cover uh you, know, you can get all uh what 116 118 one, uh editions 120 or, uh, 121 from Ancient American Magazine you can go to their website uh ancientamerican.com and get the uh, order the PDFs or order the actual magazine, send, send Wayne down to the post office to get some cardio, exercise, carrying a whole bunch of magazines <laughs> to send out to everyone. Got <laughs> so, uh, anything else? Uh, Richard, do you want to plug? Uh, yeah, well, I, just,
4: w- I just wanted to return to a picture to dear people too if they will uh, go and see issue number one sixteen because that's also a picture of a shell cup from Spiro, Oklahoma also circa twelve hundred AD, which mm-hmm. has winged cat headed serpents with horns. Four oh, of geez. them.
1: geez. <laughs> Mark, it's time to say good night. <laughs> uh,
2: it is time. Oh yes it is. It is time to say goodnight, hey, uh, th- th- yes. Uh good, well, good night. Thank my you, Richard.
4: And thank yep. you all very much. I I've enjoyed it.
2: We we'll see everyone you. Saturday.
4: Wonderful. Thank you.
1: Good night now, everybody.